I was curious how many folks are new since the last time I was here, or just don't remember me. <laughs> Actually, praise the Lord. That it's nice to see hands, nice to see new faces. Uh, this is my third time, as Michael mentioned, that I've been here. Uh, uh, Brian usually waits about a year so that the memories fade, you know. <laughs> he doesn't want anyone to remember who I am before I get up here. No, that's just kidding. We're going to be studying God's Word today. That's, uh, as uh, Michael mentioned, that's what I do, meaning I believe God's Word is the reason we gather. It's the reason we're believers, and it's the reason that we're called together to meet, is to understand and be in His Word, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it. So I teach verse by verse. That's another thing I learned from Brian was the importance of being methodical about approaching the Word of God. And uh, it's not a dictionary. Is that how it's used in some homes? You know what I'm talking about? It sits on the shelf, and then when you have a question, you pull it down like you would the dictionary. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You have to live in the Word because it lives in you. So we're going to do that today. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to John chapter 4. That's where we'll be today. And I'll open in prayer, and then we will take a moment to uh, study through God's Word this morning. Dear Father, we praise your holy name in this place. We thank you, Father, that you have made a way possible for men and women to gather in your name by the Holy Spirit's power. And especially this morning, Father, for your provision of a building, for your provision, Father, of the services of men and women who have volunteered and have given of themselves to serve you and to serve those who are called according to your purpose. Father, we thank you for the chance to be here and to be in your word. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of uh, men like Brian, that is, he has brought your word here on a regular basis and continues to grow men and women in your name through the word, that, that you have been faithful, Father, to bring ears to hear, and again this morning, the same, dedicated men and women, Father, who know that it is the word of life, the bread that we live on, that you are ready to show us in your word, Father, how we are to know you better and to live according to your holiness. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity this morning. May our words, uh, my words, be your words, and may the hearts that hear, Father, be open to the message. And we ask that everything we would say and all that we might do as we learn would glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. John chapter 4. How about we just start by reading the first four verses of John's fourth chapter? It begins, verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. John's fourth chapter opens with Jesus in Judea preparing to go back to the Galilee. And we hear an interesting context or an interesting historical background here. He's leaving because we're told the Pharisees have learned that he's baptizing more men than John, more women than John. And that in reality it wasn't him, it was his disciples doing it. But that doesn't matter because the way the Pharisees had heard it, Jesus was doing the baptizing. And that's important because back in chapter 3 of John, verse 24, we hear that John the Baptist has been at the same place Jesus is now, baptizing. But by the time you reach chapter 4, John's now in prison and he's been murdered by Herod Antipas. So at the point where Jesus' disciples learn that the Pharisees are upset, that he's doing the same thing John was doing, and in fact he's doing it even more successfully 
than John the Baptist. Well, that causes alarm, as you might imagine, because if they put John in prison, it only makes sense that Jesus is next. And with that concern, Jesus, we're told, departs for the Galilee. Now, Jesus was probably in a place called Aeon or Eon. If you have a map in your Bible or if you have access to one later, you'll see it. It's right near the River Jordan in about in, in the northeast corner of Judea near Jericho. And we're told he's going to go to the Galilee, which is a several mile walk north from there. And he's going to have to travel north, northwest to get to the Galilee. But that takes him smack dab through the middle of a place called Samaria. Many of you have probably heard the term Samaritan. Only when you've heard it, right, there's a word in front, right? Good Samaritan. In fact, I found it interesting on the way here this morning. I had to drive by Good Samaritan Lutheran Church. It caught my eye as I was driving here. So we remember that phrase. We remember it from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, and a story that Jesus tells there about a man, a Samaritan, who shows kindness to a stranger. We call him the Good Samaritan. Now, to really have an understanding of the power of that story back in Luke 10 and the power of the story here today in John 4, you have to understand how ironic the term Good Samaritan really is, how strange it would have been to anyone in Jesus' day. Because you have to understand the relationship between a Jew and a Samaritan to understand this story today. The Samaritans take their name from the region, as you might imagine, of the region of Samaria. Their history traces back years and years from this point to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, you may not have studied much of how the Jews were taken into captivity, or perhaps you have. But a few minutes of background will be important to us today if we're going to understand this story. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took the southern kingdom of Judah captive in about the year 597 B.C., He forced them to leave in chains, leaving none behind. About 120 years earlier, the northern half of the Jews, which were called the northern kingdom of Israel, they had already been taken captive by a different group, by the Assyrians. But that group in the north wasn't entirely taken. There were a few remnants, a few Jewish families that stayed behind. They escaped the Assyrians and they lived in the northern half of Israel. After the southern kingdom was taken captive... And then 70 years later, allowed to return, those few remaining families in the north heard about the return of the southern kingdom, and they tried to travel down to join them. But there was a problem. In the years they had been living by themselves in the north, they had started to intermarry with Gentiles. Gentiles that the Assyrians had sent down in place of the northern kingdom to try to settle the land. Well, one thing you don't do if you're a Jew is marry a Gentile. Not in that day and age. And they also adopted gods from some of those Gentile cultures so that now by the time that the southern kingdom was returning from their captivity, they encountered these half-breeds. They were Sumerians. From the point of view of a true Jew, these Samaritans were no longer Jew. They had intermarried with Gentiles and they had left the true God to worship idols. So they rejected them. In fact, you see that happen in Ezra's book, in Ezra chapter 4. Let me just read you two or three verses to show you. At the point where they're beginning to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and these ragtag half-breed Samaritans come down and try to join, this is what we hear in verse 1. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, who was the leader, and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Asherhardim, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. 
But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. We ourselves together will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. So the Jews rebuffed the Samaritans, sent them away empty handed. So what do you think happened? What would you do? Well, the Samaritans turned their backs on the Jews and said, we don't need you. We were here first. So they return into Samaria. They say, we're going to build our own temple. How's that? We're going to have our own priests. In fact, we're going to have our own law. We're going to have our own rituals. We're just going to forget you guys. We were here first. We're the true Jews. And so they set up their own system in Samaria. They rebuilt a temple or built a temple on a place called Mount Gerizim in Samaria. They actually produced a counterfeit form of worship in that temple. They created priests out of their people. They eliminated all the books of the Old Testament except the books of the Torah, the five first books of the, of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. They kept those, but they got rid of all the prophets sent to Israel because they didn't want to have anything to do with them. But then, interestingly enough, they went through the five books of Moses and they deleted every reference to Mount Moriah because Mount Moriah is where the temple in Jerusalem is. And they wrote instead Mount Gerizim. They changed it. They changed it so it said what they wanted it to say. And they set up their little system of worship, turned their backs on the Jews and said, we don't need you then if you won't have us. Now, you could draw some interesting parallels between what they did and what we can see happening even today in the Christian faith, can't we? I'm thinking specifically of Mormons. I don't know if you know much about the Mormon faith, but you pretty much just got a description of what the Mormon faith did. They took what was ostensibly Christianity in its beginnings and then adulterated it to the point where it is no longer truth and is in fact a false religion. But they did it to serve their own purposes, to feel good about what they believed in. You could also make a similar parallel to groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's probably a thousand others if you went through the list. These are all false faiths that have a grain of truth only in the sense that they started with the truth and then changed it. Samaritans, as you might imagine, then had a fierce hatred for Jews, and likewise, Jews for Samaritans. Now, if you go back and you read the story in Luke chapter 10, you'll see even more clearly what was remarkable about this Samaritan in Jesus' story. He helps a Jew, a stranger. In fact, they would often not do that. They would often kill or harass Jews if you passed through their land. It was really interesting. If you were going from the north, the Galilee, into Judea, passing down south, they often would not have anything to do with you or even threaten your life because you were going to Jerusalem. But if you were leaving Jerusalem and going north, they welcomed you. Or at least they made your travel easy. If you were to go look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and Jesus preparing to go south into, into Samaria to head toward Jerusalem, listen to the reaction of the Samaritans. This is fascinating. In Luke 9:51. When the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. We're talking here about a place to stay overnight. But they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command down fire to come from heaven and consume them? You see the, the, the prejudice in that, don't you? They were just looking for a reason to destroy their Samaritan neighbors. So what's striking here about the Samaritans is that despite how obviously wrong they were in their beliefs, they felt sure they had the truth. They were sure that their beliefs were right and what they had been taught was accurate. 
I mean, these people were sincere. They had conviction. They had beliefs. They had traditions. They, they were getting somewhere with God, or at least they thought they were. They were convinced that all the stuff they did pleased God. You can be sure of that. But folks, they were sincerely wrong. Can you be sincerely wrong? Can you be sure about something? Absolutely sure about something and yet be completely wrong? Completely wrong? Absolutely you can. And before faith, folks, every one of us was. There's a study that Barna Research Group did. You know Barna? He does a lot of studies in the Christian world to understand the thinking and the behavior of Christians. And he came up with a study a few years ago that was very revealing because it showed just how readily people will define their own truth if it gets what they want, gets them what they want. This is what he said. He asked this question. Is there absolute truth? Sixty six percent of American adults responding to the survey said that they believe there's no such thing as absolute truth. In other words, different people can define truth in different conflicting ways, and they're both right. And then if you narrow the group down to those between the ages of 18 and 25, it goes up to 75%. Three out of four people in the 18 to 25 range actually think that you and I can define truth differently, and we're both right. Never mind the logical problem of that. Where does that leave you theologically? Where do you go to know the truth? Now, there is a difference between truth and error, right and wrong. There is a truth that never changes, that cannot be bent to fit the desires of the human will. It's God's truth, and it's the only truth. It is truth by definition, personified in Christ the man. And therefore, if the Samaritans in their day had wanted to know that truth, what could they have done? Well, they could easily have researched the history of how they came to know what they know now. They could have realized we changed things. We made things up. We went to the truth and then made it something different to suit our own purposes. They could have known that, couldn't they? Of course they could. But, you know, the problem was they weren't interested in doing that. Like a lot of people today, the phrase I use is there's an awful lot of people who would rather be right than know the truth. Would you rather be right or know the truth if the truth required that you be wrong? These folks in Samaria were content with their own counterfeit version of the truth. But on this day in John chapter 4, truth appeared and spoke to this woman. Look at verses 5 through 9. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Isn't this an intriguing scene? He reaches Sakar. Now, it's a place just outside a city called Shechem. You may remember Shechem if you've studied the Old Testament. It's a famous place. In John's Gospel here, we're told that this is near the land that Jacob gave his son Joseph. That happens in Genesis chapter 48. And the spot is also within sight of 
of Mount Gerizim. In other words, standing where Jesus is standing right now with this woman, they could have looked up and they could have seen in the distance the mountain on which the Samaritans have placed their temple and they choose to make that their mountain for worship. They're within sight of that where they sit right now. There's this well, as we're told, it's called Jacob's well. But don't misunderstand what the scripture is telling you here. It's called Jacob's well because they concocted that story. Yes, it's near Jacob's land. And so they made the assumption that, oh, well, it's near his land. He must have drank here at some point. It's his well. It may have come along years after Jacob, for all we know. But they knew the land had once been in his possession. So they start claiming, oh, yeah, this is Jacob's well. That's how a culture of unbelief, by the way, decides what's true. That's how they come up with truth. Someone says it, the rest believe it, it's true. I'm always amazed at how much Scripture reflects today, even as it describes events of thousands of years ago, because there's really no difference today with what we see going on today. Men still prefer relics. They still prefer folklore over the truth of God's Word. For example, did you, did you know this? Today in the Holy Land, if you went to visit Israel or if you've ever gone, there are a lot of sites, as you might imagine, designated to be historically significant locations from New Testament times. Things like, you know, where Jesus fell on the way to the cross or uh, you know, where his tomb was, for that matter. Do you realize that most of those places that have been identified, or at least some, there's no rational basis for establishing them for where they are. There's absolutely no legitimate evidence whatsoever to suggest that those are the actual places they claim to be. And in fact, in a few cases, they completely go against the geographical descriptions that are provided in Scripture. And yet, year after year, people flock to these same places, right? Told by a tour guide that, yeah, this is where this happened and this is where that happened. Oh, really? Well, let me touch it. Now, does it really matter if some of those places are wrongly identified? Well, I guess it depends. I mean, if you're asking me, Steve, does it matter if we know the precise location where he fell or the exact place where his tomb was laid? I mean, what if we're off a little bit? Does that really matter? No. In that case, you're right. It probably doesn't really matter. It's kind of harmless. But on the other hand, if you're saying, is it a problem if we allow these physical relics to take on spiritual significance in our lives? If our hearts treat them something like an idol where we begin to see it over God's word, it means more to us than what's written in God's word, then, yeah, absolutely it matters. It's a false man-made religion when we do that. We've taken the physical over the spiritual, something of man's heart over what God has placed in his word, and we've made our attention things on this earth rather than things in heaven. Yeah, then it matters. God never allowed the Jews, for example, to learn the location of Moses' burial. You ever wonder why? You know, if they had known where Moses' body was buried, every last living Jew would have gone there, dug him up, and made him a relic. In fact, when you read in Jude that the enemy fought with Michael over the body of Moses, my opinion is, and I think this is one that many share, the whole point of him trying to get the body was he knew men would turn it into an idol, and he wanted men to do that. And God wouldn't allow it. God knew our hearts would take what was meant for good and turn it to evil if we had our opportunity. So the Samaritans here are guilty of that same kind of idol worship. They were not true followers of God. They followed a counterfeit faith. And folks, when you depart from the truth of God's word, all you have left is relics 
and buildings and history and folklore and tradition. You have an empty shell that is human religion. And therefore, you start worshiping that religion rather than worshiping Father who is in heaven. Because you worship according to the precepts of men. Now, you can feel quite comfortable with that counterfeit style. You can last a whole lifetime worshiping the wrong thing only until, only until you encounter the truth. When you encounter the truth, you have to make a decision because the counterfeit will stand in a glaring contrast to the truth. In verse 7, Jesus asked the Samaritan woman, draw me a drink of water. And you can tell, obviously, she's surprised by that request, isn't she? And she's surprised because, she says, we have nothing to do with you. And you who gave us this well, uh, he that gave us this well, and he drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? Is her question. She says, why are you a Jew asking a Samaritan woman for a drink? Within the Jewish faith, there was so much animosity toward a Samaritan that the Jewish leaders had made this rule. No Jew could ask a Samaritan of any, for any favor. They could only pay them. In other words, you could never be indebted to a Samaritan. If you needed their help, you had to pay them for it. And so in John's chapter 4, verse 9, the indication here is that the woman knew that rule and was saying, this is odd. You, a Jewish man, asking me for a drink of water? Now, as this scene plays out, I want you to understand there's two conversations here. If you've ever read this story, you probably know this. There's two conversations in this chapter. On the one hand, there's the conversation the woman is having. And on the other hand, there's the conversation that Jesus is having. And they're two different conversations. It's like two ships passing in the night. Are there any husbands in here? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, right? Or maybe I should have said, are there any wives in here? You know what I'm talking about, right? So you're talking about one thing. Your husband's talking about something else. And it's as if you're in different rooms. If he's even listening at all, if it's like it is at my house. There's a great story of a very mature-looking lady, an older lady who had an appointment with a marriage counselor, a Christian marriage counselor, and she comes in she announces, I want to divorce my husband. And the marriage counselor looks at her and says, well, do you have any grounds? And the wife says, well, yeah, we, we live on almost a whole acre. And the counselor kind of says, no, no, no. He says, you don't understand. Uh, what I want to know is, do you and your husband have a grudge? And she said, no, but we have a really nice carport. What's your point? And she, the counselor's at that point kind of getting frustrated. He says, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just don't think you understand what I'm saying. I just don't see any reason why you and your husband should divorce. And she says, well, that's easy. She says the man can't carry on an intelligent conversation. Isn't that the problem, right? From our side, it's sensible. We don't understand why the other side doesn't understand. Now, look at his response. His response raised an entirely different topic. He says, if you knew the gift of God, verse 10, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So that was his response, right? She says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water that you're going to offer? Her response, which I've already read, is, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob. So Jesus responds with this entirely different topic. He basically says, if you knew the gift of God, you wouldn't be having this conversation the way you're having it. If you knew the gift of God, and then secondly, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked for living water. 
He's turning what is an earthly discussion into a spiritual discussion. He's addressing a woman who, as a Samaritan, is a captive of a false system of worship, a false religion, and he's inviting her to know the true God, to seek the truth, to put aside her myths and her creeds and everything else that they have. And he says there's two things she should do, or two things she should know. The first thing was the gift of God. What is that? What's the gift of God? I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, when Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If she had known the grace of God manifested through the gift of faith, she could have known the true religion, the true faith that points to God, that leads to salvation, rather than a counterfeit religion which only leads to death. That was an opportunity, he says to her. What's ironic about that is she had just mocked him for his request of a gift of water from her. And he turns around and says, you know, if there's anyone here that should be asking for a gift, it's not me, it's you. If you had only known the gift of God, you'd be asking for it. And then secondly, Jesus said, if you knew who was speaking to you, what he's saying here is if you knew Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, if you knew that person, you wouldn't be having this conversation. That's also ironic, because what had been her first concern? Her first concern was his identity, wasn't it? What started this whole conversation was her thinking, wait a minute, you're a Jew. You see, again, she misses the point. She's focused on his earthly identity, and she has no clue about his spiritual identity. But yet, if she had known that, this would have been a different conversation. She lacked the knowledge of and the faith in the Messiah. You see, Christianity is not a religion of relics. It's not a religion of traditions. It's not a religion of rules, doctrines even. I mean, yeah, we have our cherished traditions. And we have a few historical artifacts that can mean something, I guess. And yes, we teach guidelines and rules for godly living, and we profess certain doctrines so that we can guard the truth. Yes, we have those things. But folks, none of those things save men's souls. None of them. We are saved by the person of Jesus Christ, by his obedient life, by his sacrifice on the cross, by his blood shed to cover our sin, by his spirit who quickens us to faith in his sacrifice and then indwells us to eternal glory. That is what saves men. Christianity is a true faith focused on the person of Jesus Christ and a trust in his work on the cross. And if this Samaritan woman's eyes had been opened to that spiritual truth, if she had had a faith in that truth, if she had known Jesus in a personal way as the Messiah, then she could have been a different person. I mean, a fundamentally different person. She would have been thinking different thoughts. She wouldn't have been talking about the water and the well. That had been the last thing on her mind. Jesus says she wouldn't have been distracted by that physical water and a well. What she would ask him for instead is living water. And living water in Scripture only means one thing. Only means one thing. It's a spiritual term and it refers to eternal life found only in the true living God. Jeremiah, just one verse out of Jeremiah, shows that so plainly. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, he says, For my people, for God's people, have committed two evils, speaking about Israel. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. But she's still not on the same wavelength as Jesus. 
Because when you look at her response, she's back to the conversation about water. She looks at Jesus and she says, okay, I don't see any bucket. There's nothing you're going to draw water with. So where's this living water you're going to offer me? How are you going to get it? And then she mocks him by saying, wait a minute, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? And Jacob, he drank here and this water was good enough for Jacob, but it's not good enough for you. You need living water. Her point is that if Jesus had something better, then prove it. Show it. You know, there's a lot of pride, a certain degree of pride that comes from anyone who thinks they have the truth, right? If you haven't seen this, then you haven't talked to the people I've talked to. But when I encounter people who think they have the truth, they're, the, they're some of the most prideful people on earth. They figured it out. My dad, and I don't talk about my family very often, but my father was a man who, who grew up as an unbeliever, grew up in a family of unbelievers. Then late in his life, he decided he was going to figure out what the true religion was. Is that how we do it? Faith comes because up here we figure it out in our human power of intellect. Remember what Paul says? So that no man may boast, God has appointed a way that puts all the glory where it belongs on him. Like a true Samaritan, this woman here defends her religion, defends Jacob, defends the well. Who are you to declare that I don't have good enough water with my faith, with with what we hold to be true. Every relic, every little sacred inch of land, every symbol in her day had meaning. And by God, that meaning was never going to be relinquished even one inch. She was going to defend every bit of it. You know, I can remember growing up in a family. I told you my dad was an unbeliever and I grew up in, in that same setting. We had a Catholic tradition. And I won't declare that every Catholic is an unbeliever. That's certainly not my point. But in our case, that was the truth. We were a family of unbelievers participating in the Catholic tradition. And if you took me aside at any point and you tried to tell me I didn't know the truth, I wasn't saved, I wasn't going to heaven, you were in for a good argument. I was going to defend Catholicism until I died. Because it's what we had been taught. It's our family tradition. Who are you to tell me we're wrong? And I would have defended you all the way to hell. And I would have been right in my own eyes. No faith... No knowledge, but I defended the practices that I had been taught. Why? Because they were our thing, our family thing. True faith never or shouldn't think that way. Have you ever found yourself feeling prideful over your faith? Do you realize that's mutually exclusive? That's, that's, that's self-contradictory because you have nothing to be proud about. Now, you may feel pride over your Lord. That's different. But to defend yourself on the basis that I figured this out, why aren't you smart like I am? That's a sort of sinful pride that God will not permit. Once God brings the truth in our hearts, we can no longer project a prideful self-knowledge, but rather only humility, the humility that grace requires. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So who gains the credit for our faith? The one who shined the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts. God himself. So the woman here, still not talking about meaningful things, still not talking about spiritual things, still talking about man-made institutions and petty rivalries. So look how Jesus goes next in the conversation. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, is going to thirst again. But if whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I love what he does here because her pride is where? Her pride is in that well, in the history and in the relic. He points to it and says, you know what? You drink from that, what happens? You get thirsty again sooner or later. You got to come back and come back. Everyone who comes here thinking they're going to have their thirst satisfied, is going to come up short. Sooner or later, they're going to be thirsty again. And by the same token, no matter how often they went to that temple that they created for themselves up on Mount Gerizim, no matter how many times they sacrificed for their sins there, what has to happen? They walk away still carrying the guilt of their sin such that sooner or later they've got to go back and back and back. And no matter how often she would pray, no matter how often she might sing praise, no matter how often she might tithe or whatever she did in her faith, it only eased her guilty conscience for a little while. Sooner or later, she was doing it again and doing it again. Eventually, her doubts and her fears of what death would bring would return, and eventually, her sense of loneliness and spiritual emptiness would come back. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? Folks, nothing in this world, and this is true both for the unbeliever and it's still true for the believer, nothing in this world can satisfy us because none of it addresses the spiritual need that we all share. Do you understand that? I don't care how many hours you put in at work. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how many cars you have. I don't care how many shoes you have. I don't care what you do with your time. It will never make you feel happy unless you're serving the Lord. Unless you're serving the Lord. I love to hear Michael say they need volunteers. That's a common need in every church I've ever been in, right? Let me tell you, folks, if it means giving up something in this world to take time and effort to serve in the body of Christ, try it if you haven't already. But whatever you gave up will never compare to what you gain in serving the Lord. Never. Jesus announces a better way. Now, I want you to look at the solution because the solution here is important. He says, first... You must seek to come after him. Don't come to the water in the well. Don't come to some other relic. Don't come to some ritual. If you've come here today because there's holy people in this building, if there's some relic or something about this building that makes you feel like you've come to God's place, you need to get that thought out of your head. This is just a warehouse. It's a pretty one, but it's just a warehouse. The church is not the building. You didn't come here for a ritual. You didn't come here for a musical presentation. You didn't even come here for what I'm doing. You came here, if you came for the right reason, because of the person of Jesus Christ. And because in obedience to him, you gather with those who likewise have been called into faith. The indwelling of Christ's spirit becomes for each of us this eternal life that Christ referred to, this spring well that never dries up. And eternal life, therefore, is simply not found in this world. It's found only in God's gift. Not in our own efforts, not in magic words or ceremonies. Eternal life is a gift of God accomplished in the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at how this finishes. These ships continue to pass until Jesus makes them meet. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not become thirsty, nor have to come all the way down here to draw. 
She's still looking for an earthly solution. What's missing? She's looking directly at the Messiah with her eyeballs, but she hasn't figured it out. She can't see the truth. She's hearing his own words spoken to her, and yet she can't hear the truth. What's missing? Well, in a word, it's repentance. Here's what repentance means. How many of you were taught this? In order to be a Christian, you have to repent. And repentance means I have to think of all the sin I've ever had in my life and be sorry for it and promise I'll never do it again. Or something of that version. Could you honestly do that? I challenge anyone in here to stand up here right now or at any point in time, if you don't want to do it now, and list every sin you've ever did and repent of it. I get like 40 into the list and I, I, there's thousands more and I just get tired and quit. So is it a condition of our salvation that we be able to enumerate all our sins and individually repent of all of them? Is that even practical? It is not what repentance means. In fact, I use this analogy. There's repentance with a little r and repentance with a big R. For an unbeliever, we're talking about repentance with a big R, capital R. And it's not about an individual sin in that case. It's about a life lived apart from God. Repent and turn away from a life that looked to other solutions but the real living God. That depended on self or in some other respect, turned your back to God. And repent of that and turn to the one and only living God and to his word and to Christ who saves. That's what repentance means. Now, having become a believer, then repentance with a little r kicks in. That's the repentance of repent of your daily mistakes and sin, of the lifestyle choices that need to change, of the ways in which you do not honor your Lord having become a believer. That's a continual, never-ending process until we're in our glorified bodies. But that doesn't save you. In fact, it's not even possible until you are saved. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. This woman lacks repentance with a capital R. The Bible says that Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 1 says it this way, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, this is speaking of John the Baptist, Jesus came into the Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, and listen to what he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, in other words, of a life lived apart from God. And accept the gospel. So now Jesus is ready to take aim at her heart and bring this repentance. And look what he does, as only God can do. In verse 16, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir. I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> you think? Jesus says, go get your husband. Would any of us have been that bold if we knew her circumstances? Go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. Because of shame, she lies. To hide the true nature of her marital situation. God knew her heart, though, and so Jesus announces it plainly to her. says, oh, yeah, you're right. But that's only half the story. Oh, how that retort must have shocked her and stung her deeply. Can you imagine how she felt in that moment? I mean, today, unfortunately, this isn't all that shameful. In that day, it was terribly shameful. 
This woman had lived a life of shame and of sin, marrying and remarrying many times, which the Bible calls adultery. And to compound her sin, she was now living with a man outside of marriage, which is adultery as well. And her behaviors, I've got to tell you, are just symptoms here. They're just symptoms of a disease that's common to every man. She lived a life of hypocrisy. Do you see that? What was she doing two minutes ago? Defending her religious role and her religious background and this well and Jacob and looking all the pious. And in the meantime, she's a dirty sinner. Do you see the irony in that? How many times as a Catholic did I defend Catholicism while living an ungodly life? It's just pure hypocrisy. You know, when the gospel is presented to somebody, you've got to present the truth of their problem, and their problem is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans. And in a few words, what Jesus did was he exposed this woman for who she truly was, and she had no choice but to understand it in the moment. She couldn't run from it, right? Look what... She says next, as we conclude, look at her response. She suddenly gets on the same conversation. Isn't this a miracle all of a sudden? He's not talking about water. He talked about husbands. And yet that moved her to a new conversation. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. How did he get her on that conversation? You know, it's interesting. She never replies to the whole husband thing, does she? Well, who can blame her, right? But yet she got the point. I mean, the fact that she doesn't want to talk about her past doesn't change the fact that she's quickly interested in where he's been going the whole time. And now she turns to a point that everyone who's been an unbeliever has to get to eventually. And that is this. If I've been convicted of sin and I recognize I have a debt before God, the next question out of your mouth is what? How do I get right with God? Where do I go to get rid of this problem? How do I get in contact with this God? But look at how she approaches it. She says, which mountain? Is it this one or the other one? And he says, woman, it's not a mountain. It's not a building, okay? It's not about doing something in your works. It's about a faithful reliance on God. And it's about spirit and truth, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He understood her question and he gave her the answer. That hour, folks, is now. You know, he says it is coming and it is here now and it is, in two, it is also here for us now. In other words, it is the church that he established at Pentecost that continues until today. There are no buildings. You know, in Jesus' day, the only place you could sacrifice and worship was at the temple. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, wherever the tabernacle was, that's where you had to worship. Wherever the ark was, that's where worship took place. It was physically located according to a relic. And God has changed that. He said that you do not worship now on the basis of relics or traditions or rules or doctrines even. You worship on the basis of a person who you place your trust and faith in. And he meets you where you are in the spirit. And then he begins a work in your life. But only after you've come to believe. Jesus spoke words of life to this woman. And as we close today, 
We need to understand that believers are answering this call of the Spirit every day since coming to faith, then ultimately reaching out to others in this new life so that we become that wellspring to others. Look down the page. Look at verse 39 on your own. Look at what this woman does shortly after this conversation in verse 39 of chapter 4. She starts telling people, Jesus is the Messiah. Look what he did. Look what he knew about me. He must be God. And what was the response among a people that hate Jews? Verse 39 says many were beginning to believe. Folks, if you've got people in Las Vegas who don't know the Lord, I've heard that's true. I'm not sure. Is that true? And are living an ungodly life, and yet they're sure that the next roll of the dice is going to save their life or whatever it is they chase. You know, I'm fond of saying Vegas really isn't different from any other city. It's just that all the sin's on display here. But it's no worse. If they're not listening to what you have to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps it's because in the conversation we haven't been willing, we haven't been bold enough to actually approach them on the point that needs to be said, which is sin has consequences. And God has a solution for that sin. But you have to know who and you have to believe in his work. But when that happens, you can be sure they'll believe as God appoints and they'll reach others for the sake of the gospel. They will truly become sources of living water, just as Jesus promised. Let's go out of today with that with that heart for the believer who is yet to be. We thank you, Father, for the time in your word. I thank you, Father, for the patience of those who would spend their time listening. I pray, Father, that what they heard was not a man, not my words. I pray, Father, they heard yours. I pray they heard through the Holy Spirit the message of your gospel. Father, we have at times in our own life been disobedient. In some prior moment, Father, prior to faith, we were that Samaritan woman chasing after what the world offers and ignorant, Father, of the truth. But in some prior moment, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Father, you've showed grace and shown light into our hearts and brought us into the family of God. And now, Father, as your word commands us, we are to be a wellspring. We are to go out from this building, from our homes, our workplace, our schools. We are to reach those who we find, Father, who are still looking at the world in the hope that it will solve their problem. We pray, Father, you would uh, embolden us, strengthen us. Give us a courage, Father, to say things that need to be said in a kind and loving way. But knowing, Father, that we must speak so that your words can be heard. We ask, Father, for the privilege to be useful in that way. May Lighthouse Christian Fellowship, Father, continue to be a light and to grow that we might reach more here. We praise you, Father, for the chance to worship this morning, giving you all the glory for that opportunity. And, Father, asking that it be your will, we all return here shortly to continue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.